0: The title this morning for this talk is uh, Prophetic Signs. I'm not thinking about the kinds of signs, not this sort of sign. Uh, Most people have learned how to ignore this sign or a sign like this. Our interest this morning is in the prophetic signs which deserve our attention. We're going to look at two very significant signs this morning that point us towards two very important warnings. Well, one's a warning, one's an invitation Last week we looked at Mark's Gospel, chapter 8 And a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples And he asked them, who do people say that I am? This is, to this day, an important question Who is this man? People in our world have all sorts of opinions about Jesus And would bring a wide variety of answers to the conversation Uh, He's a good man He's a religious leader He's the son of God. Or maybe most living in Canada today would finally admit that they really haven't thought about him all that much and that in their mind he's not terribly relevant. There's not much room for Jesus in their thoughts. Now you remember the disciples' answer that we saw last week. They said the general consensus was that he was a prophet. They gave three answers. Elijah, John the Baptist, one of the prophets. The bottom line as they saw Jesus as a prophet, the crowds, the people that watched him. Now, a large part of the world today would give that same answer. Muslims say that. I had a fascinating conversation with a Muslim missionary at the University of Manitoba a couple of years ago. He was quite interested in Jesus being a prophet. He wasn't interested in Jesus being more than a prophet. Christians, too, would agree that Jesus is a prophet, Uh, Since the early days of the church, from Eusebius to to, uh, John Calvin, it's been affirmed that in his ministry on earth, Jesus took on himself the three offices or roles of the Old Testament. He was prophet, he was priest, and he was king. And as priest, he sacrificed himself to God. Now, in today's reading from the Gospel of John, we're going to look at chapter 2, starting with verses 13 to 22. It's the story of the cleansing of the temple. In this story, we see Jesus acting and speaking in the style and manner of an Old Testament prophet. Now, it might be a good idea for us, before we look at this story, to think just a minute about the primary role of the Old Testament prophet. What was their job? Many would say it was to tell people what was going to happen in the future. And that's often how we use the word prophecy today. We speak of prophecy as something that predicts what's going to happen somewhere at some time in the future. However, in the Bible, the primary function of the prophet is not to foretell the future, but rather to communicate God's truth to people. This is the very thing that we see Jesus doing in the New Testament, and especially in the story of the cleansing of the temple. Now, the Old Testament prophet generally used words to convey his message, and his message would start with something like, Thus saith the Lord. Uh, This is a picture of Ezekiel uh, speaking to this valley of dry bones, people who had died in battle, and there was nothing left but sun-bleached bones. And he says to them, Thus saith the Lord. And they get up and they live again. They're animated. But at the same time, the prophets not only used words, they used actions. Dramatic or symbolic actions to communicate God's message. I'll just give you three short examples or four. Jeremiah one day took the elders out of the city. He had picked up a clay pot and he walked out with the elders in the city and he smashed that clay pot on the ground saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, even so I will break this people and this city. Dramatic action. Isaiah, the prophet, removed his clothes and lived naked, or mostly naked, for three years as a statement of how God would use the Assyrians. That's pretty dramatic, wouldn't you say? At least he didn't live in Winnipeg. That's, that's. <laughs> Why did he do that? Well, God himself has the answer in Isaiah 20. Then the Lord said, My servant Isaiah has been walking around naked, And barefoot for the last three years. This is a sign. God says his walking around naked is a sign. A symbol of the terrible troubles I will bring upon Egypt and Ethiopia. For the king of Assyria will take away the Egyptians and the Ethiopians as prisoners. He will make them walk naked and barefoot. Both young and old, their buttocks bare to the shame of Egypt. And then Jeremiah, who you see here, he's got a yoke around his neck, a cattle yoke an oxen would wear to pull a plow or a cart. He did this to warn the nations around Israel that the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, was going to place his yoke on those people. It was a warning. And it was a warning that gave them an opportunity to change. God told Hosea to marry a prostitute, telling them, Go and marry a prostitute. This will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and by worshiping other gods. The prophet again was giving a warning to his people, and his aim was to provoke them to change. What I want us to notice this morning is that when these prophets acted and when they spoke, they were warning the people. And a warning meant that they were being led into an opportunity to change their behavior. The warning was an invitation to something different, something new. Now, in the story of the cleansing of the temple, um, which is in John chapter 2, we're going to see the same prophetic pattern of action, prophetic or symbolic action, and words. And it's action that leads to a warning or embodies a warning and leads to an opportunity to repent. I'm going to read this story, and you can follow along in your Bible, or you can just follow along with the slides that you're going to see on this screen that will show pictures from this event. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover. So Jesus went to Jerusalem. Now you see there, you see the Passover lamb, you see... The blood being put on the door lintel. Uh, you see the wine. You see the people gathering for a meal, a Passover meal. In the temple area, Jesus saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and the cattle, scattered the changers' coins on the floor, and turned over their tables. Then, going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures. Passion, for God's house, will consume me. Passion, zeal, the words are from a Davidic psalm, Psalm 69. I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. For zeal, for your house, consumes me. And the insult of those who insult you fall upon me. The story feels angry, violent. It surprises us. It's a Jesus that we're not used to seeing. Who is this Jesus who does these strange things? And we can see what he's doing. He's responding forcefully and even angrily to what he sees in the temple. He's clearing out the people, the animals, knocking over tables. Who is he? He's Jesus taking upon himself the Old Testament role of a prophet. And some of the words that fit those prophets also fit this story, wild, unpredictable. Jesus uses dramatic actions to communicate God's message, forcefully and physically. He is like one of the prophets. Before we continue the story, we need to focus briefly on some of the details. The setting of the feast of this cleansing of the temple is the feast of Passover. It's a celebration of their deliverance from slavery in Egypt and male Jews were expected to go every year to the Passover. And the city would have been bursting at the seams. At Passover, the population of the city would have been quadrupled. Any Reasonable estimate of the population of Jerusalem at that time comes in at about 250,000 people. By comparison, Winnipeg has a population of roughly 700,000. I want you to imagine, this is going to take some work for some of you, I want you to imagine that the Winnipeg Jets have made it into the Stanley Cup Finals. (laughs) Imagine that the Jets and that other team are now tied 3-3, and they're going into the very last game. And that game is being played on Portage Avenue. Now imagine that all those expatriates that have left Winnipeg to go to Arizona and Vancouver and Toronto and Montreal and other exotic places, they all come back. They all come back for the game. And imagine that the population of Winnipeg explodes fourfold. And there are 2.8 million people in Winnipeg. Talk about a traffic jam. That's what it was like in Jerusalem. That Passover. People everywhere. Traffic jams. Well, on foot, but still traffic jams. People would be frustrated. Tempers might be short. Resources would be stretched. All these pilgrims make their way to the temple. And there are two things they must bring The first is money to pay the temple tax And the second is a Passover sacrifice or offering Cow, sheep, or if they're poor, a dove Now consider the tax for a moment The tax rate was a half shekel per person But there's only one coin that they could use to pay their tax It's a Tyrian shekel, a coin minted entire. Just north of Israel. They would have to exchange their regular Roman currency for that coin and that coin only. That's the only coin that the temple would accept. But why this particular shekel? It wasn't because other coins had secular images on them. The difference between this coin and others was simply quality. Most Roman coins had a silver content of around 80%. But that was pretty flexible Sometimes it would be a lot less In Tyre they made their shekels very carefully They were always 94% silver The people who ran the temple wanted the best That was the coin with which you paid your temple tax Now think about the sacrifice Many of these pilgrims have come by foot for weeks To get to the Passover Bringing an animal or animals along for sacrifice would be a bit of an inconvenience. Uh, It would add to the difficulty of their trip. Also remember that the animals for sacrifice had to meet very rigid standards of quality. Couldn't just bring any old animal. Had to be the right animal. Only certain ones were acceptable. The right ones. Well, that was a problem for people. But the family of the high priest at the time solved that problem. Uh, The the high priest at that time was Caiaphas. His father-in-law, Annas, opened up a side business on the Mount of Olives. In the Talmud, it's called the Bazaar of Annas, and he sold sacrificial animals there with a guarantee. If you bought the animal from him, it was acceptable in the temple. And people did that But now at Passover It looks like the bazaar Has moved into the temple From the Mount of Olives I kind of wonder if they weren't renting out The space on the Mount of Olives As camping space for the pilgrims But we don't know, that's just me Now it's located in the Court of the Gentiles Now this is what it looks like in the story Each pilgrim Had to have the right coin and the right animal which would equal right worship and the people in charge of the temple were very happy to help they were very effectively and efficiently facilitating right worship here's the right coin here's the right animal doesn't that sound like a reasonable thing to do I mean it sounds like good management to me So why do we see an angry-looking Jesus using a whip to drive animals and people from the temple? It was a reasonable thing to do. Why is he acting this way? Well, two reasons come to mind. First, the people might have been taken advantage of or cheated. Some commentators suggest that they were charging two to three times the value of the sacrificial animal. We don't know. We don't have any receipts, bills of sale. But this is not unlikely. And sadly, the idea of taking advantage of the pilgrims sadly fits well with what we know of human nature, doesn't it? Now, while John's Gospel leaves out these words, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record Jesus saying, It is written. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. It's in Matthew twenty-one, thirteen. Now, second reason may be that in setting up business in the temple, they had occupied the court of the Gentiles with merchandise. Gentiles could come into the temple, but that's as far as they could go. They could not go into the court of the women, they could not go into the inner court, they could not go anywhere near the Holy of Holies. They could only come into the court of Gentiles, but they could come there to pray, to worship. But all this commercial activity would have filled that court up, and there was no place for the Gentiles to go. They have been excluded now from that worship. Now, so far we've, we've looked at Jesus' prophetic action in the temple And we've looked at the possible reasons behind that action Maybe there was some gouging Maybe it was because the Gentiles were now shut out But let's finish the story We haven't finished it yet What do you think was going on in the minds of the rulers of the temple? The chief priests, the other priests The, the members of the Sanhedrin the, the scribes who were the religious lawyers as it were the scholars what's going on and I think they were raging mad well we read but the Jewish leaders demanded what are you doing if God gave you authority to do this show us a miraculous sign to prove it alright Jesus replied destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up what they exclaimed, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple. And you can rebuild it in three days? Actually, not quite accurate. They had been rebuilding it for 46 years, and it wasn't going to be finished for another 30 years, and then a couple of years after that the Romans were going to level it. And all that's left, if you kind of look at the, the foundation wall there, all that's left of that huge space is just part of one wall on the western side that. We now call the wailing wall where people will go and pray. It's all that's left of it. But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. Here you see Thomas checking out the wound of Christ in his side where the spirit pierced him. He's been raised. To life. Now notice this, they don't ask, why are you doing this? Does it make you wonder if down inside the Jews who were running the show knew why? Did they know that they had overstepped some divine boundaries in their behavior? I can guess that deep down inside they knew they were in the wrong because of their motives. But they weren't ready to be pushed around by this son Of a Galilean carpenter So they challenged not what he had done But by whose authority he had done it They demand, if God gave you authority to do this Show us a miraculous sign to prove it That's interesting, a sign They just had a sign a dramatic, symbolic sign, and they missed it. He cleared out the temple. He brought the commerce to a stop. In dramatic form and strong actions, Jesus had given them a sign, but they, like so many in the Old Testament before them, missed the sign, and they missed the warning. So Jesus offered them another sign one that they would have to wait two years to see, his death and resurrection. And they eventually failed to even properly read that sign as well. Now for the big question. If, if the cleansing of the temple was a dramatic prophetic warning, then what was the warning? If they were indeed overcharging the pilgrims for the, for the animals, The warning would have been to change the way they were doing things. The opportunity was to stop sinning against God by taking advantage of the people. That would have been a very simple warning and a very simple warning to fix. They had the opportunity to stop gouging the people. But what if they weren't gouging the people? What if they were, indeed, as many commentators believe, just charging a fair price for the animals and were seeking to facilitate the business of the temple? especially with the city so packed with pilgrims. Well, that sounds good, but it doesn't fit the picture that we've just seen. If they were just trying to help the worshipers, then why this dramatic sign? Why the anger? Why the violence of Jesus if they were just trying to help the people worship? That wouldn't make any sense. Well, as I was thinking about this, I, I remembered a book that I, that I read uh, about 40, 40 to 45 years ago I can't remember exactly when I read it But I remember one line in the book I've got to say this uh, So last night I, I, I pulled the book off the library I don't Off my shelf in the library I don't know when I read it last 40 years probably And I found the quote And he said, as he made this quote from some unknown pastor in Ohio, he said, if you remember one thing out of the book, remember this. Yes. I got it right for once. I remembered the one thing. The rest of the book I don't remember. Here's the quote, the line that stuck with me for 40 years. It's a warning. God will bless certain things as a supplement that he will curse as a substitute Do you take health supplements? Do you take vitamins? That's a health supplement. I do a little bit sometimes when Wendy reminds me. Uh, They help our body function better, don't they? Or they're supposed to. They're good. But you can't substitute them for a good diet. You can't eat junk food and then eat health supplements and expect to be healthy. It's not going to work. It's a good supplement, but it's not a good substitute. What Jesus is doing here has the feeling of what? A blessing or a curse? Looks like a curse to me. A whip and throwing them out and kicking the tables over and scattering the money. Who is he angry with? Is he angry with the pilgrims or was he angry with the management? Management. Right. I don't know who said that, but right, good answer. Management. The men behind the commercial activities. Let me ask you a question. Is it possible that the rituals of the temple had become a, supple- a, a substitute instead of a supplement? Had they become a substitute for an encounter And a relationship with God Is it possible That that kind of substitution Would be the reason for Jesus' action They have substituted their rituals For a relationship We can see that the exchange of coins And the provision of animals Would have been supplemental to worship And it might have helped the people Therefore draw near to God But the actions of Jesus make it look like the motives behind that were not to supplement worship, but were a substitute. A substitute worthy of God's curse. Well, that's one thought. There might be another possibility. Maybe they were missing the point, the management, of what the temple was all about. Maybe they had been so concerned with right rituals They had forgotten about right reasons. They were busy helping people have the right coin and the right animal. But that doesn't mean that they were helping people come to God, which was the reason for the temple. The temple was there to enable people to come and meet with God. In fact, as Jesus points out, these people were generally speaking spiritually A hindrance. He says that to them, pulling no punches whatsoever in other passages. The rituals were a means. Very good means. Uh, The sacrifices God created, he planned them. They were a means to an end. But they weren't the end. What is the goal? A life-changing encounter with Jesus. That's the goal. A life-changing encounter with God. Maybe the problem in the temple was that the means had taken on more importance than the end. It outweighed the significance of the end, the desired goal. Maybe it was that which Jesus' actions are warning us to avoid. Rituals that we use are good. We've done a whole bunch of rituals this morning. Standing, sitting down, uh, singing songs together listening to prayers, listening to scripture. Those are all wonderful worship rituals, good things. But they're means, not the end. The end is for us to encounter God, and we can never forget that. And finally, looking at these prophetic signs, we need to take a closer look at Jesus' last words. He referred to himself, to his body, as a temple. Destroyed this temple And in three days, I will raise it up again. Jesus is boldly declaring in a prophetic way that he is now the new temple. He is now the new pathway to come to God. John picks that up from Jesus' words in the upper room in John 14 and records Jesus as saying, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. you want a life-changing encounter with God, you need to come to Jesus. Jesus' body is where we come for a life-changing encounter with God. Jesus' first prophetic sign is, is a warning. The way they were doing things wasn't right. It wasn't working. It's like Jesus says, don't substitute the ritual for the relationship. It's not enough to go up to the temple and offer the right sacrifice. The rituals have never been enough. Something more is needed. Rituals aren't bad. They're great. Spiritual habits and rituals are vitally important to us. We need good worship habits, but they're not the goal. The goal is God. To come to him and be known by him and to know him. The second sign, his words are more an invitation than a warning, an opportunity. If you're hungry for God, Jesus says, come to me. If you're longing to be right with God, come to me. But what does Jesus require? He doesn't require the right coin. He doesn't require the right ritual, even. He requires the right heart. A humble heart that says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me. In, in the Eastern church, they call that the Jesus Prayer. People in the West are now finally picking up that idea, and we're calling it the Jesus Prayer, too. It, it, it's, it's, it's an awesome prayer, it's an amazing prayer. Jesus, have mercy. Often we run out of words. We don't know how to pray for somebody. Uh, somebody has cancer. Somebody's dying. Somebody's lost their job. Somebody's marriage is falling apart. We hardly know the words to pray, but we can always pray. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. But there's a humility behind that prayer. Lent is a, a season for reflecting on our need for mercy. This last picture I have is taken from one of the Jesus movies. I don't know which one. The woman caught in adultery who was going to be stoned. And she's reaching out to Jesus for mercy because she recognizes in her oppressors there was no mercy. There was judgment. But she recognizes in Jesus that there's mercy. And she reaches out to him. Lent is a season for us to reach out to Jesus for his mercy. We need it. We're failures. You want one good reason for giving things up at Lent? I'll give you one good reason to give things up for Lent. You're going to fail. It's like New Year's resolutions. You're going to fail. Last year I gave up. Remember, I told you last year I gave up cookies for Lent, and I. After my refit workout, I was buying coffee at the counter and I just automatically bought a cookie and ate it before I even remembered that I was giving up cookies for that. Failure. And what does failure make us feel? Humble. And where do we go when we're humble? Lord, have mercy. I'll try again. I'll start all over. Jesus, have mercy. Come to Jesus. He's the way to God because he's infinitely more than a prophet. He is the Son of God. He is God forever. He always has been divine. He always will be.